Well, good morning. My goodness, it's been uh, been a long time. It's good to see you. Uh, I want to let you know what an important part you're playing in the uh, ministry of Idaho Mountain Ministries. We are now involved in one way or another with three to four hundred pastors around the state and throughout the Pacific Northwest. And each of those pastors are probably ministering to an average of 50 people or more, in some cases many more. And you people here at Cole have an opportunity to touch the lives of all of those people spread throughout Idaho and in surrounding states. And Karen and I just want to thank you so much for your prayer, your encouragement, uh, the support you provide and uh, all of the ways that you've made this uh, ministry possible. Uh, I want to say again, because I I still keep uh, getting asked this question, we have not retired. Uh, I never know anymore what to do, whether to laugh, cry, or wind my watch when people come up and and say that to me. But uh, after years of talking to you about never retiring, uh, certainly we need to change place and pace over the years, but always using our life to the very end for God's glory. How could I ever retire? So uh, we have not retired. We have just shifted into another ministry, and we are, quite frankly, having an immense amount of fun. We are really enjoying what we're doing. Now, I would like to ask you to turn to the second chapter of Luke, if you will, And we want to look at this uh, wonderful story of the event uh, that took place in our Lord's life when he was 12 years old in the temple. The most uh, talked about movie in 1994, as you probably know, was Forrest Gump. Uh, It was a story about this uh, wonderfully decent man with an IQ of 75 who managed to get himself involved in all major American historical events between 1950 and 1980 and does so with remarkable wisdom and grace. There's some big laughs in the movie, but there are also some uh, some great truths. There's one, uh, you may remember the one incident where Gump is talking to his mother, Mama Gump, And someone had called him stupid. And so he says to his mother, uh, he's describing to his mother some of his his pain. And she says, Gump, stupid is as stupid does. And then he turns out to be a wise doer who really is incapable of doing anything less than profound. There's this wonderful uh, incident, I don't know if you remember, when his friend Jenny Curran, uh, she, he's gone more uh, down the main line. She's become counterculture, gotten involved in drugs and sex and pretty well thrashed her life. And She came out of a very difficult childhood. She was uh, sexually abused as a child. And, and they come upon the old shack where she was raised. And she picks up rocks and starts uh, throwing it at the, at the house until she's exhausted. And Gump says, sometimes there aren't enough rocks. There's just some some amazingly profound statements that this uh, that this man says. Uh, Roger Ebert, in his review of 
of Forrest Gump describes it as a comedy, I guess, or maybe a drama or a dream. He's right. It's about the dream that all of us have that despite our our ignorance and our ineptitude, that somehow we will be able to make our way through life and touch people's lives profoundly. I, throughout that movie, I kept thinking of James' words in James 3. The wisdom that's from above is first pure, he says, then peaceable, gentle, full of mercy, easy to be entreated, filled with goodness. And he goes on to say, wherever that person goes, they leave behind a, a harvest of peace and, and righteousness. And that's the kind of life that we seek after. We don't want to waste our lives. How can we employ them in such a way that we touch others' lives uh, profoundly? And so we ask ourselves, so what, what is the secret of that gump-like presence? Well, the, the movie never comes to grip with that issues, but the text that we want to look at this, uh, does this morning, it's, it's Luke's account of the only thing that we know about Jesus during the first 29 years of his life. I want you to grasp that fact. This is the only thing that we know Jesus did or said during the first 29 years of his life. Now, I want to read the text beginning with verse 40, back up a few verses into the preceding context, because the context gives us a setting for this this passage. Uh, the child, that is Jesus, grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Every year his parents went to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the feast according to the custom. After the feast was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they didn't find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple court, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them, asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me? He asked. Didn't you know that I must be about my father's business? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Then he went down to Nazareth Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his, his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Now the story begins with the annual feast of the Passover in Jerusalem. There were, there were three events that were obligatory for, uh, uh, for Jewish males. The feast of Passover, the feast of Pentecost, and the uh, feast of booths. Every Jewish male had to make that trek to Jerusalem, that pilgrimage during those, uh, during those three feasts. But uh, after the dispersion, which you scattered all over the then-known world, it became increasingly difficult to gather. And so the rabbis determined that the only obligatory feast was the uh, feast of the Passover, and it was to that feast that Jesus and his, and his family came. Women were not normally required to make that trip, 
but it becomes apparent from the way Luke words the story that it was a normal, usual occurrence for Mary. She almost always accompanied Joseph when he uh, traveled uh, to Jerusalem. The uh, tense of the verb in verse 41, translated went, suggests uh, regular attendance. Children often made the journey with their uh, children. Again, it wasn't obligatory, but the rabbis encouraged families to take their children, parents to take their children, and particularly as they grew uh, closer to the age of majority, which in Israel was age 13. That's when a boy became a man and took on the obligations of the, uh, of the covenant. Luke underscores the fact that Jesus was not yet a man. He was a boy. In fact, he calls him the boy Jesus because he wants us to know that he was underage. He was still a child. He was not yet a man. Uh, the uh, family uh, made the long trip up to uh, Jerusalem. They normally, normally traveled in large, uh, larger groups, uh, caravans, because of the danger of traveling in those days. Particularly the uh, region between Jericho and Jerusalem was dangerous. They had to pass through a very narrow pass, and that, of course, is the location of the story that Jesus told about the Good Samaritan. There were thieves there, and so they traveled uh, in mass to Jerusalem. Spent the week there in preparation for the feast, celebrated the feast, and normally, on the day of their departure, there was a gathering in the temple. Everyone got together, all the families, and they had a sort of going-away service. From which uh, Joseph and Mary departed to go back home, but Jesus apparently stayed in the temple. His parents were unaware of it. it a large group. Uh, Mary probably asked Joseph, where is Jesus? Joseph says, you know, with a kind of a plum that fathers have, oh, well, he's with the, he's with." family, friend. He's somewhere in the train. So they traveled a day out of town. They camped that first night. They started looking for Jesus, and he was nowhere around. Uh, if you've ever been a parent who, who lost a child, you know how, what a, how panicky you become at that point. A number of years ago, when our son Brian was about four or five years of age, we were camped in uh, Tuolumne Meadows up in Yosemite, and, and uh, Brian had become fascinated with the bears that used to wander through our camp. That was a time when the bears roamed much more freely than they did today. And they, there was a garbage dump right close to our campground. And uh, Brian, unbeknownst to us, went over to the garbage dump and took up a place under a tree and was sitting there watching the watching the bears feed. But we didn't have any idea where he was. We we awakened the entire camp and we got everybody looking for him. It took him three or four hours to find him. He knew where he was. He wasn't lost. He said we had lost him. I still remember uh, how how panicked I was when I realized that, that he was gone. And I'm sure Joseph and Mary felt the same way. And so they rushed back to Jerusalem. It took them a day to get back. And they searched high and low throughout the city. And they finally find Jesus in the temple precincts up on the terrace. Not running and playing with the other children, but sitting at the seat of the rabbis and listening to them. In those days, rabbis sat on benches, usually in a semi-range in a semicircle fashion, and uh, their pupils sat on the ground in front of them. That's where that idiom comes from: sitting at the feet of your teachers. And the passage that I read uh, is an example of their catechetical method. The rabbis would lecture. 
And then they would give their students an opportunity to ask questions, and then they would quiz their students at a set of uh, questions that they asked their students to see if they understood. And here our Lord was sitting with Israel's brightest and best, the most highly educated scholars of that day, and he was literally blowing their minds. That was it's a, a loose translation of the term amazed. It actually means stand back. It's akin to our idiom. Woo, stand back. Astonishing them with his wisdom. Calvin says he was giving them a taste of his wisdom and knowledge. When Mary found uh, Jesus, she, uh, Luke also tells us that she was amazed, but he uses a different word. It means appalled. Uh, she was really upset. It's odd, isn't it? You know, you, you're frightened out of your wits when your children are lost, and and then when you find them, uh, your uh, fear turns into rage. I mean, you're just angry that they that they did this. And Mary, being you know not only the mother of our Lord but a good Jewish mother, says to Jesus, um, "I love the way Eugene Pat- Peterson translates this in his message." He says, "Young man, why have you done this to you? Your father and I have." have been half out of our minds looking for you. And uh, our Lord responds with, uh, with real grace and sensitivity. Could have been embarrassed, I'm sure. Most kids would have been. You know, here he's sitting at the feet of Israel's intelligentsia, and his mother shouts to him out of the crowd. And he, he responds very tenderly uh, to her. Why are you looking for me? Don't you know? That I had to be here dealing with the things of my father. Now that phrase is, is translated variously, as you know. The NIV, I think, says, uh, tra- uh, must be doing the business of my father. Other translations say, I must be in my father's house. Some translations say, I must be in, uh, I think if you have NASB, the uh, side note says, in the things of my father. The problem is the, the noun translated things, business, house, doesn't even occur in the text. The text just reads, I must be about the blank of my father, and you have to supply the term. The the is plural, which suggests that the noun would be plural, so it can't be house. It's got to be, or it seems to me to be inappropriate to put house there. It has to be something else. And things makes the most sense. What is our Lord saying? Well, I have to be doing the things that, that matter. I have to be doing the things that my father wants me to do. I have to be focusing on his business. My business is to do his business. My will is to do, to do his will. That's what he's saying. Uh, Mary didn't understand. Uh, we're told that she didn't, but she pondered these things deep within herself. Like every good mother, she wanted to get to know her child, to understand him. There's one final note here. It's intriguing to me. Luke tells us that Jesus went down to Nazareth with his parents and was subject to them. Now, going down, of course, is a reflection of the topography of of Israel because you do go down from Jerusalem. But I think there's something more than just uh, geography here. I I, I think that, if we can put it this way, imagine the come down of Jesus to be exposed to this heady, sophisticated intellectual atmosphere, uh, to be uh, impressing the most intelligent, the most highly trained people of that day, uh, 
and then to step away from that and to go back to this little hick town of, of Nazareth and to submit himself to his blue-collar father and peasant mother for the next 17 years of his life. Uh, Matthew Henry, who's one of my favorite writers, 19th century theologian and writer, puts it in this quaint way. He says, Jesus was subject to his parents. He observed their orders and went and came as they greeted him, or directed him, excuse me. And as it would seem, worked with his father at a trade of a carpenter. Herein he hath given us example to children to be dutiful and obedient to their parents in the Lord. Though his parents were poor and mean. Now, he doesn't mean mean-spirited. He means they were lacking in financial means. Though his father was only his supposed father, yet he was subject to them. Though he was strong in spirit and filled with wisdom. Nay, though he was the son of God, yet he was subject. To his parents, <laughs> how then will they answer it who, though foolish and weak, yet are disobedient to their parents? I, you, you could take off from this point and, and preach an entire sermon on the necessity of obedience uh, to parents. It's certainly here, but uh, that's, that's not the primary thought that I want us to derive from this, uh, this passage this morning. What, 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 you, what I want you to see is this. Here... Is, a, is the servant of the Lord buried in this little town, backcountry town of Nazareth for 17 years, concealed for God's time. See, this is the what I think of as the humility of, of obedience, quietly going about the Father's business wherever the Father placed him. Now, we must do what Mary did. We need to hold these things Dearly, and, and think about them. Paul says, if we ponder these truths, God will give us understanding in all things. There are a couple of things I want you to observe about this text. The first is that it's bracketed by this idea of growth. Uh, verse 40 says, the child cr- grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom and the grace of God was upon him. That's, that's verse 40. The last verse of this section is verse 52. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and with men. Well, you have this idea of growth on both sides of the text. That's what scholars call an occlusio. It's there on purpose to, uh, to draw our attention to what's happening in the story. Now, uh, verse 40, if you read it literally, it, it says... Um, he grew and became strong. You may remember the King James has strong in spirit because there are some very early manuscripts that insert that phrase. The, the phrase probably did not occur in Luke's original writing, but it was placed there by scribes later because they understood what, what Luke was talking about. He was not talking about growth in, in bulk, in size. He's talking about growth in spirit. He's becoming strong in spirit. He's talking about soul-making, as the old Quakers used to say, what was happening internally to him. The last verse in the section, verse 52, says he grew in wisdom and stature. And again, you might, you know, it's, it's tempting to say, well, what Luke is describing here is multidimensional growth. He's growing in body, soul, and spirit. But again, I don't think that's what Luke has in mind. Because the word stature here, while it can mean size, 
is the same word that Paul uses in Ephesians 4 when he calls upon us to grow to the stature of the fullness of Christ. He's talking about moral stature, not physical stature. So the emphasis in this passage, as I see it, is what was going on in Jesus internally. It was a spiritual growth. Getting strong in spirit. He was growing in wisdom. He was getting to know his father. He was coming to know his father's will. He was abiding in his word and, and in his will. He spent 29 years getting to know his father. Now, the second thing I want you to note is that, uh, as I mentioned early on, this is the only thing we know Jesus did for 29 years. It's like a radar scope, you know, with a sweep moving around and bloop for 29 years. One sighting. Now, here is a man who had an infinite job to do. He was called to bring salvation to the whole world. And for 29 years, you only see him once when he's 12 years old. Just that one sighting. Now, there are some some other writings, some of the apocryphal writings, that tell these fantastic stories about what Jesus did during those 29 years, making birds out of clay, clapping his hands and the birds would fly away, and all sorts of ridiculous uh, stories about silly little miracles he did just, uh, to, uh, just for his own amusement. But... Everyone, the Christians of that, of that era recognized that all of these stories, all of these books were heretical in nature and in purpose, and they were disregarded. So what it boils down to is this. We know nothing of what our Lord did for 29 years apart from this incident. Oh, we know about the nativity. We know about Anna and Simeon and what happened at the temple when he was 18 days old. But from that point on until he makes his appearance... And John the Baptist begins, uh, begins his ministry. We know nothing except this, this one event. So let me ask you, what was our Lord doing during this time? Well, he was growing. That's what he was doing. He was growing strong in spirit. He was putting his roots down into God. He was... Though he was a son, he was learning obedience by the things that he suffered. He was learning submission to his parents. He was learning to be quiet before God. He was learning to look into his father's word and listen to him. That's where he first came the idea, that's where he first grasped the idea that he could only do what he saw the father doing. He could only say what he saw the father, father saying, see. 17 years later, after this incident in the temple, our Lord shows up along the banks of the Jordan River. John the Baptist was carrying out his ministry. Uh, John was his cousin. You know, Jesus knew him, of course. John was dubbed the baptizer, as as I've mentioned before, because of the strange rite that he was carrying out. Jews normally didn't baptize Jews. They baptized Gentiles. If you were a Gentile and you wanted to to enter into the covenant, you had to be baptized as a sign of repentance and faith. John comes along saying, you Jews aren't even Jews. You're not part of the believing remnant. You need to be baptized. Jesus is standing in the crowd, steps into the line to be baptized. He says, thus it fulfills 
thus it is that I necessary for me to fulfill all righteousness. What was he doing? Was he starting his ministry? No, he was simply doing what the Father asked him to do in that quiet, hidden place up in Nazareth. Went down to Jordan. Here's John preach. Didn't need to be baptized for confession of sin, but he wanted to align himself with the believing remnant. He had to do what was righteous. He had to do what was was right. And he came up out of the water and he heard that uh, wonderful word of affirmation from from the Father. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Now I ask you, what what had he been doing for 29 years? He hadn't cast out a single demon. He hadn't preached a single sermon. Uh, He hadn't cleansed a leper. He hadn't done any of the mighty works that we normally associate with greatness. What had he been doing? He'd been growing. Just getting to know his father. Listening to what his father had to say. Responding in obedience to what he heard his father say. Uh, that That was the hidden place. That was the secret place. 29 years. I just picked up a book that Carolyn's been reading. It's a mystery that's cast in a nunnery. And uh, I read in there that the novitiates in that particular nunnery spent one year in silence and solitude. And they called it the hiddenness of Nazareth. And it, I realized for the first time what, what it was talking about. It's the hidden life of our Lord for 29 years with this. Vast eternal job to do, and, and he invests 29 years of his life in growing, getting to know his, his father. And when he emerged from those 29 years of obscurity, he was a man who was filled with grace and truth. Everywhere he went, touched lives profoundly. Uh, you may remember some years ago I preached a series on the servant of the Lord. Those uh, songs in, in the prophecy of Isaiah about our Lord. I mean, the New Testament clearly identifies them with the Lord Jesus. And, and, and in Isaiah 49, the servant says, Listen to me, you islands. Hear me, you distant nations. The islands were the islands out in the Mediterranean. The distant nations are the, uh, the Gentile nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me, and from my birth he has made mention of my name. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his in his quiver. <laughs> he concealed me in his quiver. I love that phrase. To hear our Lord tells of his call, his mission, his giftedness, and his preparation. In the shadow of his hand he hid me. Placed me, a prepared, a polished arrow uh, in his quiver. Concealed me there. Sequestered near the heart of God. See, the the quietness of those 29 years is what made him the man that that he was. That, That was the secret of his greatness. It was the secret of his usefulness. For 29 years, the Lord was polishing that shaft. In those days, they used to take, uh, you know, they'd, they'd make arrow shafts out of uh, uh, ironwood or some very uh, strong wood. And they would draw it through a hole in a rock to, to, to straighten it. And, uh, and then they would spend a lot of their time 
sharpening the, the arrows and making arrows. And, and they would usually find one or two arrows that, that flew straight to the target. That became a select arrow. And that's the term that, that the servant of the Lord used. He made, he's made me a select arrow. And you have this picture of God for 29 years is shaping that man, filing down the, the face of the, uh, of the arrowhead. Uh, if you, sometimes if you're walking along the base of some of this rim rock in Idaho, you'll notice little little mounds of obsidian. And what those are are the remnants of Indians that would they would sit up there looking for game or looking for enemy uh, uh, nations, and they would be flaking arrowheads, making arrowheads. And sometimes you'll find the tip off an arrowhead that's broken. They make a mistake and break it, and they toss it away. There'll be a little pile of obsidian there. They're making arrowheads, see? Well, that, that was the father for 29 years, flaking, on the, work, working on the, the, the son's life, shaping him, molding him, making him, preparing him into a select arrow, and then he hides him in his quiver. I have a friend who has a grandfather who, who whenever he would come to town, he would always bring them candy or, or some special gift, and he'd have it in his pocket. And uh, this man says that he would go to his grandfather and say, what, what do you have in your pocket, Papa? And he'd bring out something. He'd say, well, that's what God did. He, he, he put his, his son in the pocket so he could wait for the right time to present him as a gift to the world. And it's hard, of, hard for us to think of our Lord as having to be prepared. I mean, he was the Son of God. He was God himself. Uh, that's something I'd go to the wall for. But he was also fully man. And he made it very clear that he never did anything uh, out of his deity. Uh, there's a passage in, uh, in John 5. I tell you the truth, he says, the son can do nothing by himself. How much did Jesus do by himself? Absolutely nothing. He laid aside the use of his deity. He became a human being just like us. I tell you the truth, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees the Father doing, because whatever he sees the Father doing, uh, for whatever the Father does, the Son also does. Whatever the Father says, the Son also says. So he didn't have an edge on us. That's what he's saying. He's just like us. He had to be prepared, smoothed, sharpened, and shaped, and molded, and made into what God wanted him to be, and then inserted in that Quiver for the proper time when, when he could be be taken out. And our Lord never got away from that need for solitude. Followed him everywhere he went, even though even when he entered into his ministry, and uh, there were enormous demands upon his time. He was pressured from every standpoint. He would often walk away from the crowds. Just as a few chapters later in Luke. Luke tells us that as the news of Jesus' ministry spread, crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. But he often withdrew to lonely places and, and prayed. See, it wasn't that our had an aversion to people. He loved people. He came to save them. But uh, it was a matter of maintaining a safe place, a place where he could meet with God and he could draw from him. Without it, he had nothing to say. And no power to say it. He needed that, that hidden place where he could continue 
to grow. And so it is for us. Uh, George MacDonald said there is a chamber, a chamber in God himself, which none can enter but the one, the individual, the particular man, out of which chamber that man has to bring revelation and strength for his brethren. That is that for which he was made, to reveal the secret things of the Father. See, what's done in secret is what matters. I... uh, uh, I started this last year, the practice of trying to read through the Bible once a year and uh, following uh, radio Bible classes, a little guideline, the Daily Bread book. And came across a section in Matthew, Matthew 6, that I must have read a dozen times or more in my lifetime and saw for the first time a three times re- repeated phrase occurs in verses 3 and 4 and in 6. Jesus said, when you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand's doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. When you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who's unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will, will reward you. When you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to men that you're fasting. But only to your father who's unseen. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Three times, he says. Your father who sees what's happening in secret will reward you. And I, I have, uh, for some years now, had the practice, uh, after I do some reading and thinking, writing in my journal. So I can preserve these ideas because the older I get, the more I forget. And uh, I like to get them down on paper. And this is what I wrote. Our Lord must have loved that thought. He lived in the public eye much of the time, and yet he longed for that secret place of fellowship with his Father. His purpose in the sermon is to draw his disciples away from a preoccupation with wearing religion on their sleeves, fasting, praying, and giving in such a way that everyone would see how spiritual they were. Uh, whenever I think of that, I'm reminded of a friend of mine who, who always wore a pair of wool trousers with the nap worn off at the knees just so everyone would know that he spent a lot of time in prayer. That's the very thing that Jesus is talking about, not doing. When we flaunt the disciplines of the Christian life in order to be seen by men, when all our praying, giving, and fasting from sin and self-indulgence is done to increase others' estimate of us, when we're preoccupied solely with the impression we're making and and the extent to which our reputations are enhanced, we'll have nothing but the foolish praise of foolish people. No, the only real spirituality we have is between us and God and what transpires between us in that secret secret place. Every prayer uttered there will be heard. Every gift given there is appreciated. Every effort to resist sin there will be noted and richly rewarded. We will be strengthened there. Our souls will be enlarged. And we will go from that place and leave behind the knowledge that we've been with Jesus. Your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Uh, You may find yourself in uh, circumstances where you're sidelined, bedridden, housebound, tied to a house that's just full of things to do, people to take care of, difficult child, uh, a weakness in your spouse that seems to you to be a terrible limitation. But uh, we mustn't see those as limitations or resent them as, as intrusions. That's just a place to grow. That's all.
the place to grow. Don't worry about your usefulness. Don't worry about your relevance. Don't worry about what God is going to do for you or with you. Just see that place as a place you've been planted in a, a place in which to grow. That's your Nazareth. That's your hidden place. Uh, Peter says, make every effort to add to your faith virtue and to virtue knowledge and to knowledge self-control and so forth. You know, that list of virtues that he gives us in Second Peter. And then he says, listen to this. If these things are in you and growing, they make you to be neither unprofitable nor unfruitful in the knowledge of God. So it goes right back to what we are. It goes back to soul making. It's not what we do. That's God's business, what we do. He'll put us to intended, his intended purpose. He'll get us to the right person at the right time to say the right thing, as I've said over and over again. Our business is to do the Father's business which is to get to know him, to love him, to worship him, to show our devotion to him, to listen to what he has to say, to hear his words, and to obey him right to where we are, whether anyone sees it or not. There's a 19th century missionary to North Africa, uh, Charles uh, de Foucault, who said, We do good to others, not in the measure of our words or actions, but in the measure of what we are. He who would be useful to souls must first labor with all strength and continuously at the task of personal sanctification. That's our business. It's to grow in likeness to our Lord. His business is to put put us to his intended task. I want to leave you with three examples. Um, I have some dear friends, some of you know them, over on the coast, retired couple. For years they were in very uh, active ministry. Uh, she has become quite ill. She rarely is able to leave the house. In fact, she describes herself as a, uh, as a prisoner in her own home in the sense that she can't get out. She's under house arrest. Uh, yet there's no trace of resentment or bitterness in any of that. She has one little group of three elderly women that she meets with that are in that, that complex. That's her ministry. He has a little group of businessmen that he meets with. This, this from a very active, vital, growing ministry in another part of, of the United States. They go to bed at 9 o'clock every night. They get up at 4 and they spend the next four hours in prayer, meditation, reading the Word, finding out God's will, abiding in His Word. And I'm telling you, I, I see them once a year, and I, and I, you know, I almost feel like I ought to kick my my shoes off my feet when I'm around them. I feel like I'm standing on holy ground. Nobody knows about them, but they're unbelievably useful. I have another friend here, one of my pastor friends, who just recently left a, a very good ministry, solid ministry, uh, to get a real job, as a friend of mine says. And he couldn't find a good job. You know what he's doing? He's bussing tables in an institutional uh, dining room, like Brother Lawrence. Again, no bitterness. He, uh, like uh, Father Lawrence, he's blending work with prayer. 
And for him, it's just a place to grow. And then I think of uh, the Apostle Paul. Uh, in the last chapter, Second Timothy, you know, he sees Paul's been imprisoned for some time. He's already gone through his preliminary hearing. He knows that he's facing death. Within weeks or months, uh, Nero, Nero's soldiers did take him out on the Ostian Way and cut off his head. And he writes to Timothy and says, my departure is near. About time for me to go home. When you come, bring the cloak, because it's cold in that place, and the parchments. I've been in the Mamerton dungeon, uh, not as a, <laughs> just as a tourist. <clears throat> Sat on the floor and read those words, and it was but January, February. Which was when, when Second Timothy was written, February or January or somewhere in the early winter of nineteen of uh, sixty-seven uh, A.D. And he says, "Cole, bring my cloak and bring the parchments." What's that? It's his Bible. For goodness' sake, bring my Bible. He says, "What are you going to do with your Bible, Paul? You, you're not going to be doing anywhere." He was sick, incarcerated. Only only Luke, Doctor Luke, was with him. Everybody else had left him. Churches were falling apart in Asia. All in Asia, he says, have, have abandoned me, have deserted me. Even Demas, my buddy, he's gone off to Yugoslavia. Everything's falling apart. No trace of bitterness. I want my Bible, he says. It's just a place to grow. Uh, <laughs> I've debated... A long time about telling you this, but I, you know, I'll tell you this if you won't tell Carolyn. Okay. <laughs> we just got back from uh, a session with caregivers. They're called. They're people all over the United States, and actually, it's an international organization now. People that are working with pastoral couples. We've been involved for about the last seven years, almost from the beginning. We're almost charter members, and it was a very small group at first. Now it's grown to be about fifty or sixty. And, uh, it, it's kind of a heady environment. I mean, Carolyn and I are kind of the odd people out because most of them are pro- professional therapies, therapists and counselors and psychiatrists and, you know, PhDs are a dime a dozen in that group and kind of an intimidating bunch. And, uh, Carolyn was asked to be on a panel. Scared her half to death, you know, but she did it. Now, I don't know how many of you know this, but for the last four years, Carolyn really has not been very active in any public ministry. She's had a lot of personal ministry to people, but now you know, she's turned down all speaking engagements and just hasn't been involved public at all. But every morning, every morning, she gets up, and the Bible under her arm, goes back to her office, shuts the door, and she's back there for a couple of hours. What's she doing? Well, that's her place to grow. So she's asked to appear on this panel, and it's a pretty electric uh, panel, I'll tell you. I mean, these are vivacious, bright, intelligent group of women on this panel. They've been around. And she happened to be the last one on the panel. And there are some really good presentations from these women. And then Carolyn comes to Carolyn, and in her quiet way, she begins to talk about her own spiritual life, where she was in her walk with God. And you could have heard a pin drop. And when she got through, they broke into spontaneous applause. Now, what I'm saying 
is that your hiddenness, whatever it may be, is just a place to grow. Don't worry about being useful. That's God's business. Your business is to grow. Let's pray. Lord, you have given all of us the time that we need to spend in that secret place. Help us to see the necessity of it. And for those who have been laid aside for one reason or another, feel overlooked, help them to realize that they've been inserted into your quiver. It's all part of the process of preparing and making and shaping until they become everything that you want them to be and until you deign to put them to your eternal intended purpose. Help us to know that. Believe it. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.